Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show, Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome to the Joan Hamburg Show. It's a Sunday, and we do this every Sunday starting at 2 o'clock. So come on along. We've got a really good show today. My friend, wonderful actress Tova Felchu. She truly is unbelievable. And not only is she starring in Funny Girl, where she got rave reviews, been on Broadway over 50 years. It's just amazing. But she's off to the Middle East to, well, she can't really tell, but it definitely is very important work. And she's been chosen to represent all the best that there is. And she's going to be a definite player in trying to make things better. So you've got to hear her story, her adventure. She climbs mountains. She's really a very unusual woman, a superb actress. She's got great kids, a great marriage. So I'm very happy to have her on. You're going to like it. And then my, one of my favorite foodies is Sam Sifton from the New York Times. He writes beautifully. Really, he holds you. Whether you're a cook or not, you love to read Sam. He tells you what to make, and he holds you by the hand. So even if you're not a cook, you can do most of his recipes with ease. And he makes you feel so good, because being in the kitchen and sitting down, having a meal, is a very important part of life. And you know what I love? If I go out for dinner, and a lot of these restaurants have big bars now, and it's not just for drinking. If you're alone, you can sit at the bar and have dinner, and everyone talks to everyone else, and you don't have to feel funny. I see it all the time when I go to Elio's on 84th and 2nd. The bar is packed. And I always think, wow, good for them, because bar business is what restaurants want. There's so much you can make off a simple drink. But it's they're eating now at the bar, and everyone's talking to everyone else. And I was in this particular restaurant the other night, and I couldn't believe they weren't 20-year-olds. They were like 40-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 50-year-olds all sort of looking for each other and eating, you know, Elio's has delicious food and eating dinner and chatting and talking and feeling really happy. And it was a happy place to be. I like that. And by the way, there's so much going on in New York City. I was reading that some of the theater business isn't good. And I went to see two things. In recent days, I went to see for the Irish rep, the Beckett play, Samuel Beckett, Endgame. It's a, if you've never been to the rep, 
it's a great little theater that they have. It's theirs. They own it. And it's charming and wonderful actors in this play. And, of course, Beckett, one of the greatest playwrights in the world, and big stars, Bill Irwin in this, and John Douglas Thompson, a lot of good stars. And I do enjoy the Irish rep. It's a great audience, and it's a lovely thing to do. And then the Nathan Lane show and Danny Burstein in Pictures from Home. It's based on a true story, a writer. And he writes, he acts, he does everything. But this was his story. He constantly went to his parents and took pictures and taped them and did everything to try to find out who they were, who they are. Was there something underneath the surface of parents that he didn't know? And I still remember as I got older and I was in college and a roommate said to me, what are your parents like? And I kept thinking, how many of us really know what our parents are really like? Because most parents try to protect you. You know, they don't, if there isn't anything good, they're not going to necessarily share it. And it's hard to really get for normal reasons. You don't tell everything to your kids. I remember when my kids were growing up a little bit, I thought, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm going to let my kids know who I am. And I remember my son, John, saying, hey, enough information. We don't need to know all that. And I thought that was probably a good point. But anyway, there is a lot. And pictures from home, not a happy play, but wonderfully acted. You love Nathan Lane. He does a really good job. Danny Burstein, Zoe Wanamaker. It's got a great cast. And it brings back a lot of recollection and a lot of memory. It's a very serious play. Not a lot of laughing. But it's in a big theater, Studio 54. It was packed. Packed. And that makes me very happy. Because when Broadway's busy... Restaurants are busy. The bars are busy. And it's it's my happy place to go to theater, but it's a happy place for a lot of people. And you can see they are enjoying it. The only thing I don't like is that no one is wearing a mask. Some houses require it, but very few now. And when you've got a ton of people crowded in a theater, you should be wearing your mask. That's just my opinion. And I know it's uncomfortable, but still, you know. And New York is back. The restaurants are booming and are packed. The only thing was I went to a movie on 60th Street across from Bloomingdale's, very popular movie theater. And it was the movie about Steven Spielberg, his growing up, his coming of age. There was no one in the theater. We took, we were five. We took five seats in a row 
and sitting in front of us was four or five people. That was it. It was empty. And have we gotten so used to our pajamas and nightgowns where it's too easy to curl up on the couch or the bed and watch these movies. When you see movies, to me, you want to be in a theater. You want to see it on a big screen. And particularly comedy, you want to laugh with other people. All right, guys, if you feel in the mood to laugh or be entertained or have a great time, hey, come on and listen to The Joan Hamburg Show. And we do this every Sunday starting at 2 o'clock. We have the best guests of anyone, and I'm very happy to share them with you. And we've got information where to eat, where to shop, where to go. We've got all the secret stuff that you want to know. So come on along, because Sundays belong to Joan Hamburg and the Joan Hamburg Show. Stay tuned. There's lots more straight ahead. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats. This week, New York Times Food Section had a piece called Three New Chocolate Desserts for Everyone You Love. And they were Valentine's Day recipes. They had a peanut butter hot fudge sundae. That was pretty good. They had a chocolate ale gray creme brulee. That was a little complicated because it's made with homemade chocolate custard infused with Earl Grey tea. And they have a really very good souffle cake with bittersweet chocolate, vanilla, and espresso powder. I still make Mark Bittman, a wonderful food writer, the molten chocolate cake, which was a New York Times story years ago, 2013. I like it because it takes only 30 minutes from start to finish. It's simple. It looks really good. It tastes like you spent hours in the kitchen. And Mark's recipe is for four servings. But if you're making it for a person on Valentine's Day, you can have it. So it's molten chocolate cake. It was in the New York Times in 2013, and it calls for a half a cup of unsalted butter, which is not hard, and four ounces bittersweet or semi-sweet chocolate, which you chop in pieces, four large eggs, a quarter of a cup of sugar, two teaspoons flour, that's nothing. And here's what you do. Put the butter in a bowl, melt it in the microwave. Add the chocolate to the hot butter, which is very easy, stir till melted. Crack the two eggs in a bowl, add two more yolks, you don't need the whites unless you want to keep it for a meringue later. Add the sugar, beat or whisk until light and thick, about a minute. Add the eggs, the two teaspoons flour to the chocolate. 
beat till everything's combined. Butter and flour, four, four ounce molds or ramekins, and tap out the excess flour, divide the batter. Now you can refrigerate up to three hours. The thing is, if you're going to bake them, which you have to, bring them back to room temperature. When you're ready, put the oven on 450, put the molds on a rimmed baking sheet and bake until they've puffed up. The cakes should look jiggly and they jiggle a little when you shake them. Seven to nine minutes. They're better underbake than overbake. And then when you take it out, let it sit for a minute. Put the plate on top of the ramekin and with a pot holder, invert the cake onto a plate, let it sit for 10 seconds and lift up the ramekin. It's so good. And serve it warm. So you want to serve it immediately. And I, of course, add a little ice cream, but you can add whipped cream sorbet or it's so tasty. You don't need to add anything. So a very good dessert that you can use for Valentine's Day or any day. It takes no time. And basically the ingredients are stuff people have. So happy Valentine's Day. Enjoy this chocolate cake. I'm Joan Hamburg for WABC. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. One of my favorite people is visiting today, Tova Felchu. She has won every award there is to win. Emmys, Tonys, doctorates, out of critics circle, theater world, you name it. She's on Broadway where she belongs doing a brilliant job in Funny Girl. I'm going to let her tell you about that. She does all kinds of good works for the world, has brought up incredible children, is still bringing up her husband and doing all good things. Tova, I'm so happy to have you visit. What a year you've had, more than a year. Fill me in on everything. Well, I'm first of all filled with gratitude. I was filming last summer two independent films, one called Dirty Rhetoric, which we did in the Hamptons, which was wild and kind of like a Dolly-esque surreal movie. Uh, I don't know what will happen with that, but it was fun. And then I played the grandmother of a non-binary child uh, called A Girl Like Him, and we shot that in the Midwest. And in the middle of all this, they called me to do Funny Girl to play Rosie Bright uh, as Leah Michelle's mother. And uh, hey, who had you work? seen it? I Tova, had you looked actually, at it at all? They actually called me, to be honest with you, uh, in the early part of the summer before I did the films, and or as when I was already contracted to do the films and uh, certain a concert actually of one of my one woman shows. And I said, let me see the show. They said, would you be interested in playing Rosie Bryce? And I said, I wouldn't be uninterested. Please send me the script and let me see the show. And I saw the show a few times, but twice with Beanie and Jane uh, and once with Julie Banco and uh, Jane Lynch. And then once with Jane's understudy, the great Liz McCartney, who also is my understudy. Uh, and I said, gee. I could do something with this. And then I had the honor of working with Michael Mayer 
and Eleanor Scott, who's choreographer, and Ayu Deli, this brilliant uh, tap dancing my, maestra, and of course, uh, the extraordinarily talented Lee Michelle to recreate um, our contribution to Funny Girl. And Michael Mayer held a very loose and loving hand with us, and uh, we did not have to imitate anybody, any prior, any predecessor. And the show opens with our casting September 6th, and, and, and the box office just exploded. And we're still sold out. So it's been a thrilling five months, and I certainly have another good amount to go in my contract, and it's an honor to do it. Also, Thursday night, which uh, is Julie Banco's night, who is the standby for Leah, and she's quite brilliant herself. So the whole thing was a gift. It was a real gift mm. to me, Joan. I'm very grateful. I'm excited for you. And as the mother, you play her the way she, she to me, she should be played. She's a Jewish mother. And there's That's something right. about Jewish mothers that are different, no matter what. I mean, Italian mothers are close, but they're I, unique, I right? Well, sure. What if you're doing? There's a germ of. If you're optimistic, there's a germ of everybody in all of us. However, as they say, playing a Jewish mother kind of fell into the pocket of Tova Felcher, for God's sake. Right. <laughs> in the last 16 months, I have been the mother of Anne Hathaway, Oscar Isaac, Rachel Bloom, and Leah Michelle. <laughs> you can't do better than that. So, um, no. uh, in terms of. I, when I approach Rosie Blythe, I said, what is universal about her and what is specifically Jewish? She's tactile. She has tough love and she has a huge, huge heart. And she's warm. Her, her temperature is, is warm. She's not Nordic. She's, uh, you know, she probably has Eastern European roots. In fact, Ro- Rosie Branagh, who was the real name of uh, Rosie Bryce and in fact Fanny Bonnet and Fanny Bryce. Uh, she was from Hungary and didn't come to the United States until she was 10. So had I been in the original original, which was played by Kay Medford and then a series of other Irish Catholic American actresses, I would have asked for a slight accent, but that was completely out of the question as yeah, we were um, taking started. Uh, right, that's right. A thing that had been started. And also she was a saloon owner and the um, the writers, these incredible writers, when they wrote this, moved the story from Manhattan. Rosie Bryce had four saloons in Manhattan and had her children's clothes custom made. So that whole thing now moved to Brooklyn, went to the lower class, the lower class. And, uh, and uh, they wrote their story as they thought it would be most effective. But one thing that was historically accurate is that Fanny Bryce, without gorgeous looks, made it to the top. In a time when a Zigzo girl was the was the prize um, uh, trophy, mm-hmm. let us say, for on stage work. Um, that's it. We do it eight times a week. Leah does it seven times a week, which is very smart. Julie does it once a week every Thursday. And I finally also am having my vacation. I will not be in the show February 25th evening. I'll do the matinee, and then at 11 p.m. that night, I am catching a plane to an Arab nation that has to remain nameless until I leave it, but two Arab nations to work on peace in the Middle East on a diplomatic mission. 
Wait, now explain to me. I'm talking to Tova Felcher, who's starring in Funny Girl on Broadway, and just telling us she's off on a mission. How did that happen? I mean, you're working night and day. How did they figure out that they could add one more to what you're doing and a big deal? I was invited to join um, Rabbi Mark Schneier, who's very, very active in international um, peace missions, to be honest with you. Uh, I think the fact that certain Arab Emirates will now be doing Holocaust education, probably, and this is an assumption, this is, has something to do with this extraordinary man who is the child of Arthur Schneier, who is also uh, an internationalist uh, uh, peacemaker uh, from the American Jewish community. And he's going on a diplomatic mission to two countries, and he invited uh, me to be part of that. So Andy and I are meeting with other individuals for this extraordinary trip, uh, I would never be able to go to these countries without uh, this opportunity um, to meet face-to-face with the people who matter. And we figure if they see us and we spend time with them, it will also help uh, not just the United States, but also, of course, Israel. And uh, try to make an ethnic understanding between the Muslims and the Jews, which always was a very successful alliance particularly in Spain, for 600 years. So we're working on it, and uh, I'm, I'm honored to be figured with a name like Trevor Felch, instead of being a local Jew, you might as well try to be a global Jew. So there you go. And particularly but Yeah, time, but that's a deal. And at this time, more than ever. Yeah. You know, it's like right there's a little tightrope. Now we so do they... Tova, do they coach you, or is it like you go to diplomacy school before you go? What do they do to prepare? You you study the history of the country. You study the history of the people you're going to meet. You Wikipedia them at the kazoo, and then any material sense, you you also have to dress in a certain way. Very, very similar to the very religious Jews. I mean, your knees, elbows have to be covered. Um, uh, there are certain laws. The heads have to be covered. And I want to do everything to be respectful of the right. borders that I will be, you know, within the borders of a, of a country. And uh, we'll be meeting it's, people of state. And, and right. like in every diplomatic mission, it's very fluid at the moment. The meetings are being set up, but things are never set in stone. There's always a plan B. And um, mm-hmm. it, it's just very exciting. I, I've never done this. Very never, but you're, you love adventure, and this is going to be a big mm-hmm. one. A big but one. last time you and I talked, you had talked about you were going to try to put together a one-woman show based on Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Did I'm that happen? Or right you- now. I'm working on it right now with a fabulous writer named Jake Bernstein. He's the son of Walter Bernstein. Walter Bernstein was the one who turned my brother David's play, Miss Eversport, into a movie of the week, which then got 12 nominations for the Emmy and won six. So I couldn't Jake believe that I, your brother, didn't he win a Pulitzer or something? He was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, how fantastic. Yeah, he, he's a great guy. He's still uh, 
a tenured professor at Cornell, and he was the head of theater at Cornell at Cornell University up in Ithaca for 25 years. So everybody's in, in good shape. So I am working on it with him and with a very, very good composer named Jonathan Riel. And we meet every Friday, and we're, we're off and running. We have a great inciting uh, incident to, to catapult the play into being, and we'll see how it goes. We'll get it written, then I'll try to get proper patronage uh, and see how much farther we can go with this production. But I'm not mm-hmm. Well, and so many, I'm knocking on wood, good things are happening to you. It's like a whole new, you've always done incredibly well and worked, but it's like happening again in a different way, but fantastic. Is, can you deal with all that? That's a lot. It's a lot to deal with with four grandchildren and two wonderfully married children and a wonderful husband. We will be married 45 years. Oh, um, congratulations. Uh, March 20th. And this February 16th, which is, you know, this coming week, we'll be together 46 years. So oh. it didn't take him long to ask me to marry, and we married, we went, we married within 12 months of meeting each other. So it's just great. I, I'm very excited. Listen, you know, uh, your health is your wealth. I'm just trying to stay healthy. I'm doing Funny Girl eight times a week, and I dance a lot. I dance and I clap dance it. So it's an extreme sport. So I just the question of my life between um, the massage and the PT and making sure my knees and ankles stay strong. It's wild. My my life is like a it's like an extreme swim. It's like I'm going skiing every day. But it's very exciting. And I didn't know that only one percent of our union is on Broadway. Of national equity, only one percent of the actors make it to Broadway. So I am so honored to be back there for my tenth show. My 10th Broadway show and my 50th mm. year on Broadway. 50th year. I want to celebrate it. I hope that um, somebody gives me a lunch to celebrate the fact that I made my debut in 1976 in Cyrano, but it's just summer at the college. Well, it's all beyond exciting, and it keeps growing more and more. And add to that the diplomatic work where, I mean, how many people? can leave a real footprint and have a chance to change the world. And not only as an artist are you doing that, but as someone who's been involved your way in government and in international policy. So this is a very exciting time in your life. And happy anniversary to you and yours. And I take it the kids are thriving. The kids are great. Brandon's at BlackRock. Amanda's in developmental real estate. And their spouses, Joel and Zoe, at J.P. Morgan. And, and, and Brandon's spouse, Jamie, his wife, is also at J.P. Morgan as the event planner. She's a brilliant event planner. She used to work for the Starwood Luxury Collection and the Marriott Luxury Collection. And then COVID hit. But she has continued to land on her feet. Everything is good. And we should talk when I come back from this mission. We'll have a lot to talk about in March. I'll be back March 7th. And, okay, uh, well, I'll you'll come over because we... That would be great. I would love it. Congratulations. All the best. And we'll talk to you when you come back. Thank you so much, Tom. Much love to you. You too. Tova felt you. 
and you've got to see her in Funny Girl. But I mean, think about it. She really has a chance to change the world and is going out and doing it. We'll talk to her again. I'm Joe Hamburg, and you're listening to WAVC. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Always a good day at ABC when Sam Sifton comes over to visit. And Sam, the managing assistant, managing editor of The Times, covers culture, lifestyle, everything. He's one of my favorites, and he's a superb writer. Founding editor of New York Times Cooking, which has become a Bible for a lot of us. And lucky for my family, because this man knows how to cook and has great recipes. Sam has been the food editor, the culture editor, the national editor. He was a restaurant critic, wrote a column, is having a great adventure through Foodland, and I take it all is well, and you're cooking and eating and sharing with all the rest of us? All is well, Joan. Cooking up a storm, getting ready for the Super Bowl, having a great old time here at the New York Times. And what do you guys do for the Super Bowl? Oh, I like to put out a pretty big spread. I'll I'll make some nachos. I'll stuff some jalapenos. I'll make some ribs, maybe a vat of chili. I, I, it's not that the game isn't important. What's important is having this feast. It's so funny. It's true. That's what the Super Bowl, even people like me, who are not necessarily big fans, but it's the table. The food, the making everyone say, gosh, this is delicious, or more. That's, that's right. Even if even if uh, my family is only going to watch the halftime show and the commercials, uh, at least they'll, they'll enjoy themselves with the nachos, with the ribs, with the chili. I know yours sounds better than mine. I always make the same thing forever. I make hot dogs and beans baked with maple syrup, little ketchup, mustard, until I just put them in the hottest oven until the hot dogs pop. You know, they sort of just split. And that's got, been Super Bowl. I got to say, that sounds amazing. I, I, I haven't done that <laughs> in ages. Hot dogs right and beans. In years. That's, that's a classic. I, I, but you've got to put the maple syrup and the mustard and the ketchup and mix it all up and then bake it in the hottest oven until the hot dogs burst, you know, and that is good food. Oh, I love it. That sounds great. I bet you could do that with like kielbasa as well. Or you could, it's or delicious. You could put some breadcrumbs on the top for a little crunchy mm. crunch. Sounds great. Wow. I'd eat, I'd eat I that with a big glass of milk. That sounds terrific. <laughs> or a big glass of beer, depending upon how the game is going. That's correct. Now, do you have a lot of company for something like Super Bowl? I I, I actually usually just watch with the family. Um, uh, I like to put out a big spread and just get my, my kids, my wife, maybe my brother and his kids, um, 
This year, I think I'm traveling uh, to, to watch the game with friends. So that's going to be interesting. What do they do? What do they cook? Or are they going to ask me to cook? I hope they do. Um, and, and, well, and we'll would, would they? Uh, that's an interesting thing. It's like having a doctor come for dinner. You know, <laughs> I mean, when, when we used to take listeners all over the world, and one of the listeners was a doctor one year, and he begged me not to tell anyone he was a doctor. <laughs> he said, my trip will be ruined. And yeah. I understood. You know, you've got a doctor on board. Oh, doctor, this hurts, that hurts. And you must get the same thing with food or a recipe or something else. Do your friends ask you to cook when they invite you over and you don't mind? I mean, you know, a lot of cooks are secretly control freaks. They like to be able to be in control of their kitchen circumstance. So I'm always happy when someone asks me to cook because I love to do it. I love the challenge of cooking in someone else's kitchen with someone else's materials and mastering their terrible knives and warped cutting boards and the like. And it's a challenge for me, and I enjoy it. The tough thing I got to tell you about being in my shoes is not cooking for other people. It's the restaurant recommendations. And now as we come into Valentine's Day and I start, my phone starts blowing up with texts from the bad husbands who haven't made reservations and who are asking me like, what's a great restaurant where I can get a reservation on Valentine's Day? And I just think like, forget it, guys, come on. Come on, you're too late. You're too late. Cook cook your Valentine's meal. And that would probably be a wonderful surprise for a lot yes. of people. And the, right? And the truth is, on holidays like Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, whatever, my kids call them fake holidays because they forget them most of the time. <laughs> but, you know, you are much better off avoiding a really crowded restaurant. And it could be even something simple. I've suddenly started to crave meatloaf. I, maybe because we had a few cold days. That wouldn't be my food of choice. <laughs> but I'm thinking about, I think I have to have meatloaf. Well, that's fantastic. Like a comfort I, food. I, I, I endorse that heartily, although I've never really thought of meatloaf as a particularly romantic dish not at it all certainly, it, it <laughs> certainly could be because um, anything made with love is romantic right and it's a cozy food yeah you know yeah i mean it's do you, comfortable now, do, what, do you do you glaze your meatloaf john do you, do i you, do do you employ do you use ketchup as you do with i do ah, i do excellent. a ketchup and a little brown sugar just a little, because you don't want to oversweeten it, and you can add a dab of Dijon mustard to it, just a little, and yeah. I brush it on the top. Excellent. And sometimes, and the funny thing is, I was looking through recipes, and I saw it there, Lipton onion soup, I'm embarrassed to say. I put a packet of that in the meatloaf mixture, Wow, we and, are going. This is this is the wayback machine on the Joe Hamburg show. Today. Exactly, like, these are all old classics of American cooking. Using these store bought condiments and soup mixes to amp the flavor of, of the food, and I'm not against it. 
it's uh it's a kind of it's a it's a retro feel this year i like it i grew up with it and when i was a kid one of my first jobs was writing for campbell's soup so oh, really yeah you know and, and we had a test kitchen i was at an agency called bvd and o and you wouldn't believe the amazing things that came out of that kitchen using soup Oh, sure, because you had that concentrated, like, cream of celery and cream of, of mushroom and all those of things course. that amp things up. That's, the, uh, yeah, the, which we now think of, you know, when we think of, uh, like, Minnesota hot dish and stuff like that, those casseroles that are, that are thickened and, and flavored with, with uh, soup. concentrated soup. Why? Right. That's, and what was the craziest thing that you came up with? Oh, my gosh. And you know the worst, Sam? I used to think we had the whole test kitchen with great home economists and everything. I used to think I invented it, you know, I because we spent so much time creating it. No, we did nothing that crazy, but we cooked a lot with it. And I we um, pot pies with whipped potato crust. And the uh, base would be a cream of soup, you know, and amazing. you would mix it either with a broth or milk or something like that. You know, yeah, it was very, you put the leftover rich. whatever. Very rich. And, and then, you know, coming of age and my kids horrified that I would use one of those things instead of making a stock or something that would fit in there. You know, they well, became you know, purists. Yeah, well, we, you know, we returned to, to cooking. All those, all those canned goods were designed to help us come out of uh, the war years and into the American prosperity of the 1950s and women going into the workforce and not having the time to cook and not having the will to cook and then, of course, being useless on that front. And so, so easy just to tip a can of soup into the casserole and thicken it up rather than making a roux or making a broth and a roux and, right. and the like. But, but now, you know, we're, the tide has turned and, and we're coming back to the kitchen. And we've come back to the kitchen hard since the pandemic. And people are taking pride in the food that they're cooking. They're also mindful of what food goes into their bodies and they're, you know, those, those soups, delicious as they are, are packed with, with salt, right? And, and right. other things. So people want to have a little more control over what they cook and, and, and what they eat. Uh, and they take pride in it. Um, so now, it is interesting. Yeah, a lot of progress. I remember when I first got married, my husband loved corned beef hash. And I was going to surprise him. And I boiled corned beef. You don't know. I made myself crazy. The kitchen looked like a bomb exploded. And I served it with pride. And he said, well, where's the corned beef hash? I said, hey, look at this creation. And he said, no, you don't get it. It comes in a can. And you put it in the refrigerator. And then you slice it cold. And fry it. You don't make it from fresh corned beef. He liked, you know, what he grew up with, the canned stuff. 
That's fantastic. Fa- now I've I, I've had the I've had canned corned beef hash, um, but broadcast I, I, canned. I I just I I did not know of that technique of of getting it cold so you can slice it and fry it. That's kind of genius. I'd like to reverse engineer that next time I make corned beef and then make corned beef hash with the leftovers. I'd like to kind of roll it into a log and get it cold, slice it and fry it. I bet that would be good with a fried egg. It sounds delicious with fried eggs. Or you could probably, you know, brown it a little and then put it in the oven and bake it after um, a few minutes. Whatever it is, it works, you know, and it's easy. That sounds delicious. But, you know, because of what you're doing, you've created a whole thing. My kids both cook, and they will cook. Even if my daughter is home working or alone, she'll cook. And thanks to what you write every week, it's fun to read, and they're all using it. So you've done a great service. Thank you, John. I'm I'm. I'm proud to have done so, and I'm, pr- I'm happy to help where, where I can. The whole point of New York Times cooking is just to make food approachable to people, to, to offer uh, our subscribers the confidence that they need in order to take on cooking tasks that might have been daunting uh, in the past, but that we can kind of talk them through and, and, and get them to put delicious food uh, on the table for their family, for their friends. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a real privilege to be able to do that. It's really exciting. Well, you do it, and you write so wonderfully well. I can't wait to make the garlic shrimp that oh, sounds so delicious, and you say they're easy to make. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Simple. The only thing you got to be careful with with cooking shrimp is overcooking them. You don't, yeah, you know, they, they they get rubbery, and you don't want that. So um, doing those, it's uh, such a lovely, lovely recipe that Ligaya's got. Um, and just pull them, pull them off the heat 30 seconds before you think you ought to, and you'll have them perfectly cooked, and it'll be delicious. And what about your turkey meatballs? We do a lot of turkey meatballs, but yours. Love a, love a turkey meatball. But you roast it, is that right? With scallion yeah. and mozzarella and a little jalapeno. Exactly, um, and you love the you know the acidity that you get from the scallion, the bite from the the jalapeno, the mozzarella that, that helps uh, keep everything moist. This turkey is, of course, a little dry or can be a little dry, so you got to be careful there. And boy, howdy, as they used to say, that's a delicious meatball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and then, you know, the other day I went over to the Singapore market, you know, the market that opened in the West 50s. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I'm talking about? And they have yes. stalls all over, and they had, the the big thing they had was curries, Asian curries with chicken and rice. Yeah. And the, the... and then you were talking about um, Kei Chun's recipe, one pot with curry with chicken. Oh yeah, that's a that's a really nice one. The one pot recipes really come in handy for for weeknight cooking, uh, and Kay is a marvelous recipe developer. We're really excited to work with, and and that's a that's a that's a terrific, terrific dish. Those um, 
those Hawker Center uh, curries, though, oh, boy, that's a lifetime of experience for each one of those cooks that goes into every bowl that they serve. It's a really lovely, uh, lovely place to eat. No, it was a lot of fun. And I, did you ever try the soup? We, I tried that. I don't know what kind of soup it was. They didn't say, but you had a choice of dumplings, like five different kinds, teriyaki, uh-huh. chicken, shrimp, pork. And they did it with bok choy or rice noodle or egg noodle. That was so good on a cold day. Oh, yeah. Really. And it's all in, all in that broth, all in that rich, delicious, long-simmered broth. It's pretty fun and to w- eat in the winter. I, lo- I love that. But what are they, is that a broth based on chicken or bones or necks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's chicken. Um, and, you know, I don't know the secret, in, you know, recipe styling of it, but it's so deep in flavor that I got to think that they roast the bones to, you know, create some fond in there and then, and then just tick, tick, tick on low heat for a long time, not boiling it excessively, right? Because if you boil a, a stock with bones, uh, it'll get cloudy and milky, and sometimes uh, you don't get that pure clarity of flavor right. uh, that you get with a low simmer, um, and I detect the low simmer. Yeah. And let me, before I let you go, ask you about ribs. If, if you're going to make ribs for Super Bowl, and I noticed the supermarkets are filled with ribs right now. What what do you do? Do you glaze them first? Do you bake them? What's the simplest way? You're not going to well, be outside. A, yeah, the simplest way in the New York metropolitan region in wintertime when we're not going to be outside cooking over live fire is to, is to use the oven. Um, and I glaze at the end, not a not at the beginning because glazes often contain, you know, sugars or and the sugars are prone to burning over a long period of time. So I kind of go low and slow in the oven. I um, I sometimes, more than sometimes, wrap the ribs in, in foil uh, so that it creates a little steam in there and it, it softens them up pretty quickly. And then after, let's say we're cooking baby back ribs, after an hour, hour and a half, take them out of the foil packet and begin to glaze them every 15 minutes or so, again, in like a, you know, 250, 275 oven uh, until they get all lacquered and, and, and amazing. Now, Eric Kim, one of my colleagues at New York Times Cooking, just published a terrific recipe for glazed ribs that involves just to bring us back to the beginning where we started talking about using kind of store-bought in, um, creations uh, like like soups and, and, and soup mixes and the, and the like. His recipe uses grape jelly to help create oh the glaze for his ribs. And I got to tell you, Joan, they are really... Delish? Yeah. Mm, that I recipe haven't... by Eric Kim, New York Times Cooking. Got to check it out. I will, because I haven't thought of grape jelly since I was a kid. Yeah. You know, it was I, I, a staple at home, but that's long gone. It's yeah, interesting. Yeah, so it's, it's, yeah, grape jelly, a little rice vinegar, some soy sauce together. Mm. You get this kind of, it's, 
It's like a sweet and sour situation. Very good. And one more question. I clipped a recipe, and I think it was yours, a while ago with putting mayonnaise on chicken. And I thought, could that be? Could it be? Yes, it Is can. that delicious? That, so that's, um, so that's uh, actually a, a Kenji Lopez-Alt recipe. I've used it myself uh, a gajillion times. So, so, mayonnaise is just fat, right? It's, it's emulsified oil with egg yolk. And when you put it on to a piece of chicken, it helps create um, just an incredible it, – it's like it's self-basting, essentially. So it, it's really good for keeping things from, from drying out. I actually use mayonnaise, and here's the craziest way I use mayonnaise, is sometimes when I'm making pizza and, I, and I'm cooking in a very, very hot oven and I want to put shrimp on the pizza or lobster on the pizza, mm. call me crazy, I'll, because shrimp overcooks so easily, as we discussed earlier, and because you have to kind of par cook lobster in order to get it out of its shell, it too can overcook in the, in the oven. So I toss it in a little mayonnaise before putting it onto the pizza and it protects it and moistens it and makes it oh so delicious. So uh, using, man, using mayonnaise outside yum. of chicken salad is a good idea. It's a good marinade. Right. And should people, I had a listener who said that she was concerned now about chicken because of all the stuff about chicken sickness, chicken virus. Well, is that a concern? Flu. Yeah. It isn't. That, avian flu is really bad for birds, but it's not, it's not so bad for us. Human. And it hasn't, like, we're seeing, we may see shortages of poultry as a result of avian flu, but we're not going to see poisoned meats coming into our stores. Okay. Very reassuring. Thank you, Sam Shipton. Enjoy the game with your family, and I look forward Thank to you. talking to you very soon. Take care. Thank you, Thanks. Joan. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye-bye, Sam. I'm Bye. Joan Hamburg. Bye. And you're listening to WABC. We have much more to come. And if you haven't read him in the New York Times, you've got to. I mean, it will change the way you live. I can't tell you how many people wait for all his recipes and then call or talk about it or schedule dinner around it. He's one of the best food people. All right, everyone. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you are listening to your favorite radio station, WABC. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. If you're a visitor and you come here pretty often, you probably know food halls are opening all over the city, uptown, downtown, east, west. And I love Asian food. So when I heard that something called Urban Hawker opened, I thought, I'm going. It's an authentic Singapore street food center. 135 West 50th Street. And this is the first of its kind in the United States. It has stalls from the UNESCO Hawker Centers of Singapore. And it brings together Singapore food, Chinese food, Indian food, Malaysian food, 
It's open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 10, and Sunday, 10 to 9. Food halls have become very popular in New York over the last few years, and there are too many to list, but let me give you a little advice. Weekends, very crowded. Lunchtime can be crowded. Dinner can be crowded. But we found that if you go between lunch and dinner, after two and before five during the week, they're quieter. And that's a good thing because you can find seats easily. You don't have to wait on long lines. And let me give you a tip, which I just found out. If you use Google as your browser, you can do a search on how crowded any venue is or any restaurant. You just type in the restaurant's name or venue, look at the information on the right side of your computer screen. There'll be a graph, and it's called Popular Times, and it shows how busy the restaurant is during different times of the day, weekends, weekdays. It's a great resource if you don't like crowds. Anyway, this one is in the center of Manhattan and usually very crowded during lunch, dinner, and weekends. So I picked up my cousin Nancy, who's a foodie, and we went after two o'clock during the week and we walked around. You walk all the way up and then back around where there are at least 20 stalls and we first walked and looked, and then we came back and bought a couple of things to taste. Now, they had fried rice stands. They had chicken curry. They had all kinds of Asian things. But what we shared, because now it was 3, 3.30, we shared a really delicious broth, and they put egg or a rice noodle in it. Bok choy, which is a delicious, crispy vegetable, and you had a choice of five dumplings. You could have beef, chicken, chicken teriyaki, pork, vegetable. It was really tasty, and there were plenty of seats, and we really enjoyed it. And we could have eaten our way around, but we try to control ourselves. So this is one of the markets that you're going to want to check out, and it's a really good location, and there were plenty of places to sit down and relax. Everyone was very friendly, and, you know, because it's sort of a shared adventure. Everyone is talking to everyone else. So check it out, the Urban Hawker, right in the middle of Manhattan, a place you're going to enjoy, and it's open weekdays and weekends. So I would say, don't try to go at lunchtime because it's just too packed. Try to go off hours and you'll have some lovely food at very reasonable prices. I know you're going to enjoy it and we'll share other food hall adventures as time goes by. Well, this is a big week because it's Super Bowl Sunday, and I'm making the same old boring thing. Hebrew National Hot Dogs baked with Campbell's Vegetarian Baked Beans, Maple Syrup, 
a little mustard, a little ketchup, and then roast it in the oven until the hot dogs split. It's good Super Bowl food. It's not exotic like New York food editor Sam Sifton is going to make. Not ribs or stuff like that. But even though I don't love the Super Bowl, I love to eat. So that's part of the psychology of watching the game. And it's Valentine's Day. You can get anything you want. You can get chocolate-covered orange peel from Lilac Chocolate Company. They have yummy chocolate. I'm always happy from when I was a little girl and my father would bring one of those Barton chocolate red velvet heart boxes filled with very predictable candy. But I loved it. It was special. So, you know, the familiarity of past makes everything good. Anyway, it's a special week with holidays, with I hope a lot of happiness for you. We want to wish our producer, Jen Grodd, who is leaving us to uh, go off on new career adventures. And we're going to miss her. But we're not going to miss all of you because we want you to join us every Sunday starting at 2 o'clock. And whatever you're celebrating, happy it all. And have a great day. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC.